0: FIA welcomes you to the art parlor where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice and listen to thoughtful stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now here are your hosts Anne and Peter
1: good evening everyone this is Annie Chopeta coming to you from um, art parlor and Friends in Art uh, Friends in Art is a place where, visually impaired artists and audience members thrive. So tonight we have a very special guest with us, Dan Simpson, and Peter is going to be our interviewer for the evening. And we're going to pepper in our questions as needed. So get ready. And here we go. Welcome, Dan.
2: Thank
3: you. It's great to be here. And thank you, Annie.
2: And welcome. I say welcome as the key interviewer. Uh, Welcome, Dan. I haven't talked to you in a long time, actually. I know. I feel like we're back at Guiding (laughs) Eyes, Peter. I know exactly. (laughs) What was that, 1994 or something? That was a lot. Yeah, that sounds
3: about right. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Was that
3: your first dog? That was my second of five.
1: Uh Aha.
2: Yeah. And I'm waiting for my seventh now. So, wow.
3: Well, I thought like this will be just like old times, Peter and I just roaming far and wide. Who knows where we'll end up?
2: Exactly. (laughs) So, so Dan, I, I'm really curious about your upbringing. Talk about, you know, the first time I met you was actually, I think, at the uh, Princeton University Chapel. I don't know if you remember this, but that's the first time I remember me. I think I met you there. So talk about your upbringing. What got you interested in the arts as you were growing up?
3: Wow. Well, I've been thinking about this a bunch. And um, I started at Overbrook School for the Blind when I was four, and Looking back now, I've been, I've been working on a memoir. And what I realized is that a real important point was that my first grade teacher created little books of braille poems for each of us and held just like notebook paper held together with a, those a wing tip kind of fasteners. And I started wanting to create my own little books of poem and I'd write like really simple things that tried to look like poems. And then I went on to, uh, you know, Overbrook had like a lot of the schools for the blind had an excellent music program. So I got really interested in music as I started uh, third, fourth grade, started taking piano lessons. And then that led to organ lessons. And that eventually led me to the Princeton University Chapel because I double majored in English and music. Did a little bit of poetry writing back then, but I decided to focus on music and I went to Westminster Choir College to do a oh master's in organ performance. And that's what took me to Princeton. And from there, I had studied with a guy named Bill Hayes, who studied with the blind organist Andre Marchal, who was a French organist, lived in Paris. And so I have a had a twin brother, Dave, who was also uh, blind and on a pretty parallel course with me. And we went to Paris in 1977, right after our graduation from Westminster, studied there for a year and came back. And then I worked as a church musician. And the the real speed up uh, time-lapse photography would be, uh, I worked as a church musician, couldn't make a go of it financially. And there were real challenges with memorizing lots and lots of Mm -hmm. music from week to week. And so for financial and other reasons, I got into computer programming, liked a lot about it, but couldn't stand the corporate world after about 10 years and left to uh, do something equally lucrative like study poetry. And I came back, Came back. I was in Baltimore, I came back to Philadelphia and um, study did a master's in English. And that led to teaching English in high school And eventually I left for a sabbatical to do some writing and I couldn't, I love teaching. I loved my students, but I couldn't give up the writing time. So since then I've picked up computer jobs. So thank goodness I did a stint in programming and uh, that's really what's kept me afloat financially. So I can write in the mornings and I work for Bard doing tech support in the afternoon. So that's the story.
2: So let's backtrack a little bit and and focus on some of this stuff. So that's a fascinating thing about your upbringing and taking organ lessons. And so the first time that you and Dave, I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but I was also taking organ at the time and I didn't like playing the organ for the same reason you ended up dropping it because of the memorization piece. I just, Mm -hmm. I, I had no interest in doing it and I was much more enjoyed doing other things. But anyway, my organist who at the time was a teacher who was at the time Jim Litton, Well, you probably also know. Uh, He wanted me to learn the Fugue Allergy by Bach. I do remember (laughs) this. Yes.
3: Yes. And
2: so you had the music. Yeah. And so Jim said, OK, I want you to meet these organists. They're both blind. Dave and Dan Simpson. I go, what? Why would I want to meet these blind organists anyway? (laughs) And, And anyway, so. You, we all sort of met very briefly in the, in the Princeton chapel. You gave me the music. I thanked you. You played, I, I don't know whether both of you or you played something and you guys were really good. And I thought I'm never going to be this good. I don't want to play the organ. I want to do something else. And, uh, but I did learn the Jig and I think I ultimately returned the music back to you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I still have it. I yeah. still have it. Um, yeah. That was sort of the first time I remember you. And I was like totally impressed with the way you and Dave played the organ. And, you know, I thought, wow. Thanks. That was sort of one of the reasons I thought, okay, I'm not going to be an organist. Whatever I end up being, I'll not be an organist because I'm just, that's not well, who I am.
3: So I yeah. had my version of that. I'll tell you, it was really amazing to be around Andre Marshall. He was in his, he was around 80 when I studied with him. And he had memorized and the entire performed the entire works of Bach from memory. He knew pretty much all the French Romantic literature, twentieth century French classical, which is really French Baroque organ music. And holy cow, you know, you're just like, all right. <laughs> he he puts his pants on somehow differently than I do. But.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and he, and I've heard the name. I know he's a very good organist. He was a very good organist. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so talk. Talk about your time in France. So you, you, I presume you've got a scholarship or something. How did that happen?
3: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. But what happened uh, was my brother and I wanted to go and we applied for some scholarships. But eventually what happened was there used to be this uh, feature on Channel 6 News in Philadelphia called Call for Action. And, it you know, it would be the kind of thing like you kept getting charged for a hospital bill that was never you were never supposed to pay, you know, and, and they would. Straighten it out. Well, we also we called them and said we want to study in France, but you know there's no way we can afford it. Is there anything that you could do? And I mean, it's a, it's probably I'm not very good at fundraising. I I hate it, but it was one time when I guess the need was so great that we went ahead and did that. And they put out a call and somehow coupled with the they they partnered with the local Lions Club and they raised a, a enough money. We went there before that happened. We had enough money to last for a few months anyway. And we kind of went on faith, and then they raised the money for the rest of the year. In fact, we probably had a little bit left over when we came home. And so while we were there, the first six months, we didn't have to pay for uh, lodging because uh, Marshall had been a, a long-time organ teacher at the School for the Blind. And they worked out a deal where we could stay at the school for free as long as we would take the organ class offered by a Marshall student there. And that got to be interesting because he had developed, he had gone off in his own way of playing music, particularly the French Baroque stuff. Different trills, different ways of doing uh, rubato, how much rubato or not, and you know, fingering was very different. And he wanted us to play it his way. And we were trying to play it Marshall's way. And so we were a little bit schizophrenic in terms of playing the organ for a while. (laughs) After six months, we were getting a little bit claustrophobic. It forced us to talk French. We studied French with a private teacher from the Alliance Francaise before we went. But, you know, we didn't really know how to speak it with native speakers until we got there. And being at the School for the Blind, we got lots of chances to talk to students. And some of them knew English pretty well. And so you could say, why do the French say it this way? You know, and, and we learned a lot. But then by after six months, we were so ready to get out and ride the metro and live it up in Paris. And our organ teacher's daughter was our translator at first. And she was a little bit apprehensive. Marshall did not live that kind of out in the world on his own kind of life. But we eventually moved to the Cité Universitaire which is where all a lot of um, people studying at the Sorbonne, or uh, anyway, uh, students other, from other countries could live there. And uh, we functioned much more independently for the last six months. And how was it like living
2: independently in a foreign country? How did, you, how did you make those adjustments?
3: Oh, it was cool, a little scary. I, fortunately, my brother and I could, pal- you know, we were traveling together. So that really made a big difference. But the French Association Valentine We does a lot of the French brailing, or maybe all of the French transcribing. And they had these fabulous uh, metro. They weren't maps, but you could look up a metro line and then see all the different lines that it corresponded with and at which stop. And so you could, pr- that really helped being able to get around and know how many stops to go before you could connect to such and such a line. And a lot of it was really just Having enough enough French that you knew how to say, how do you get to here or there and, and be able to you know, understand the directions. And uh, we also had a, uh, there was a guy named Joseph who I, I lost touch with, but um, from Togo, I think he was. He spoke English quite well and we would hang out a lot and talk. And then we, at first, I think we went out and traveled somewhat with him to learn the ropes, but also we had, there were other American students there and there was a, a, a woman named Pam that we were good friends with. And we would often uh, travel with her and learn different routes that way, too.
2: And I'm assuming you also learned to say things like, uh, what's your spe- what's your wine special today or something? Uh, was that yeah, right? yeah, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. We also
3: were, uh... <laughs> learned how to eat, find out like good places that were cheap, right? <laughs> cheap restaurants uh, <laughs> and all the free concerts at various embassies and how to, how to live on a shoestring, basically.
2: So that's that's quite a life.
3: So you come
2: back to the United States. You you have some some organ under your belt. Talk about how you got your organ gigs, church church gigs.
3: Oh wow! Well, I was kind of lucky because I naively, when I came back, I naively applied for adjunct teaching positions, hoping that maybe you know, with a master's and uh, a year of studying with a French organist, you know, somehow. But no, no, that was you had to basically have a Ph.D. even back in 78. Wow. So I was engaged. I was no, I I had a girlfriend who eventually became my first wife. So Dave and I went over in the beginning of 77. And then Mary came over in June, I think, of 77. We overlapped for six months and I came home for six months. Uh, My father was dying at the time and uh, I wanted to be, be back here with him. So then I eventually got engaged and we started looking for church jobs together. Mary was a church music major and somebody who was on a search committee called my brother to offer him this full-time job near Baltimore in Towson, Maryland. And he did not want to take it and I wouldn't have been able to take it on my own either. But because I was teaming up with somebody who could, you know, sight read and do some of the choral conducting and that, that kind of stuff. We applied for it and, and got it. And uh, so she conducted the senior choir. She could also conduct it from the organ some of the time, but other times I would learn the accompaniments and I conducted the high school choir and the children's choir. And so we, and we had the, you know, brass ensemble and then we were in a recorder ensemble for a while. It was a, it was a demanding job. I always felt under some pressure, but, uh, I did that for about four years before I made the jump to programming. So you,
2: you're learning all this new music, these choir accompaniments. How did you get that music brailed?
3: Or did you? I didn't. A lot of that stuff, my wife would record and we would talk about the best way. Usually it was like uh, she would record left hand and right, then right hand, then pedal mm-hmm. separately. And I would just uh, try to learn it by ear.
2: You know, you were obviously incredibly busy. Actually, before I ask this next question, let's let's move forward a little bit. So you, you're sort of, I don't know if burnt out is the right word, but you were under a lot of pressure doing this music stuff. What prompted you to take these stuff? How did you get into the technology business?
3: Well, um, Dave was really my forerunner. When we came back from France, he worked in a very part-time uh, but demanding job at a church near where we were living in the Philadelphia area. And eventually he wanted to do something that was going to sustain him more financially. He went to university of Pennsylvania for their musicology doctorate program and decided after a year, as he said, I'd much rather play music than, well, I think he, he liked the the musicology in terms of music history, but when you get down to like trying to date watermarks on manuscripts, he said, no, no, thanks. Um, So He, there was a, um, at the time was, I guess it was Bell Telephone hadn't become Verizon yet. They were offering a computer training course. I I might have some of the details wrong. There was a connection with Bell Telephone and a computer training course for people with disabilities. And he uh, signed up for that and got a a good job, became a database administrator at Verizon. And that's really, you know, what kind of gave me the lead on that. So what
2: what year was this when you started working at 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 Verizon? What, uh, what
3: year was that? I started approximately I, 19, uh, December nineteenth, nineteen eighty three is when okay. I started. That's when you started, and so you worked there for how long? Uh, all, uh, almost ten years. I left. I I had a great boss. I engineered a layoff at the end of uh, in the middle of ninety three, so that the first few months of my graduate program at Penn, I was getting. Paid unemployment. Oh, uh, well, yeah. hey. It was a good deal. So you're
2: working for 10 years mm-hmm. approximately. And in the middle of all this, a number of things happened, not the least of which is you became a charter member of Friends and Art. How do, yes. you that? How do you remember that happening?
3: Well, let's see. I think some people are really good at remembering exactly when and where conventions were. But I'm, I'm going to say around 84. It might've been in Philadelphia. Anyway, I went to the convention partially because Alexander Scorby was speaking. He wasn't there live. I think he was sick at that point. But anyway, I went and it was local. And so I went to the convention. I think I I commuted from home for a couple of days and that got me interested. Uh, And then my first uh, convention to actually just go and stay was in Knoxville, whatever year that was. And I joined uh, Friends in Art. So I'm not sure if I was exactly charter, but it was pretty early on. And I loved it. I just, I remember, oh, this is, you know, this is so great. I went to the meet and greet kind of party and signed up for my first showcase. And just to be around a bunch of blind people who were doing all these interesting things and and there were trips to museums, I was hooked. I just kind of like, this is really... Uh, I had, not, I had not had that experience because I left the school for the blind after eighth grade. And so I didn't really get to be in the high school. I didn't get to be in the high school choir and you know make those trips to other schools for the blind to perform together. So this was really uh, my first experience of being around a lot of other blind artists and musicians.
2: So I I didn't really engage in friends and art until the until the early '90s really, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, the rumor has it that you and Dave did uh, at least one and maybe several sort of four piano arrangements of various things, uh, which people the still rumors. talk about.
3: Is that wow? Okay. The rumors are true.
2: <laughs> the rumors are true. You both did that on a regular basis, as I remember, right?
3: We did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. actually, it was um, we. Uh, I'll tell you a, qu- a quick story, but it's a I, I think it's a pretty amazing story in some ways. My dad didn't make a lot of money. He was trying to find a way. We started p- uh, piano lessons, and he wanted to find a, a piano for us. And neighbors had an old player piano, and uh, they didn't want it anymore. And so they sold it to him with all the piano rolls for I don't know something. I think ten dollars, something like that. And they basically rolled it down the sidewalk and somehow got it into our house, only to discover that the player mechanism didn't work. And we had a piano tuner come look at it and the guy said uh, it's irreparable you might as well take it apart get it out of there and we looked and looked for my brother says we he we, we looked and looked for like what what was wrong like was there a hole in the bellows and we couldn't find anything and so my brother eventually told me later he poked a hole in one of the bellows just so my dad would know you know we were justified in taking it apart Later, another tuner said they probably could have fixed it. But the reason that I tell you that story is because I don't know whether I would have played the piano so much if I hadn't had to. Mm-hmm. and because and then we both wanted to play at the same time, and they just said, well, why don't one you sit on one end of the bench, the other sit on the other?" And I always did the segundo part, <laughs> the, the the primo. <laughs> and um, y- you know, when we went to high school to public school, that became kind of our avenue in like we were we were really trying to do everything and fit in and it, it was it was challenging but i really felt like we had our breakthrough when we played our first assembly and uh, people you know knew that we could we could really do this
2: yeah i'm glad you you shared that story because one of the because i also uh was was uh was mainstreamed in high school actually i was mainstreamed throughout my entire education and what really saved me was Uh, my percussion playing, Mm -hmm. you know, people knew who I was as that, that guy with the drumsticks. It it really got me into a a number of things that I wouldn't have gotten into otherwise. And, you know, it was was that one skill that really helped me integrate into the quote unquote sighted community, if you will, or as I call them, light dependent community. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah, I think that's really, really true.
3: And you're playing, Uh, you know, playing music that they can relate to. It's like, Exactly. You're relatable.
2: Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's really true. So, so you're doing all this stuff. You're in ACD. How, how does poetry come, come back into your life? You know, your first grade, you're writing oh, simple. Yeah. Poems. How does poetry come back into your life?
3: I guess it really, the big the turning point was I had a couple good English teachers, but I also had a couple bad ones, you know, who were really critical or sarcastic or whatever. But in 12th grade, I had a teacher. Uh, Mrs. Anderdonk, who she she was everybody thought she was weird, but she would do creative stuff like when we did medieval ballads. She brought in her guitar, played it like a lute, turned out all the lights, and dressed. She was dressed in medieval garb, and I I was just like, you know, just hearing those old ballads sung. I, I I I something got in my blood there, and then even though I don't think T. S. Eliot is a particularly great reader, she played a recording of him reading the love song of J.F.R. Prufrock. And I thought, I don't don't know what the hell he's talking about, but boy, (laughs) this, there's something to this. And I, I, you know, I think that's really what, what hooked me. And she was a really good teacher too, in talking about, all right, okay, this poem, or or I remember we did uh, portrait of the artist as a young man. And I, we said, boy, we're in chapter two and (laughs) And we, we're just totally lost. And she was like, "Keep reading, just keep reading." And I think similar approach to being patient in penetrating a poem and what it's about. And I think really, all that year was was really crucial. So then I, you know, then I went to Muhlenberg College and started studying English lit. I wanted to be an English major, and then started writing. I, I wrote some really horrible poems, like everybody probably does in high school. And I got some in college that were good enough to make it into the school literary magazine. And uh, so that was my first taste, but I dropped it basically when I started studying music. And it wasn't until, say, 1990, 91, something like that, I was really kind of wearing out on the corporate life. I felt spiritually really dry.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, So I'm just casting about for something to liven up my life. I took a fiction writing class, uh, one of those sort of free or very inexpensive continuing education classes. I think first at Towson State and then uh, Johns Hopkins University had some really good courses like that. I took a couple poetry courses and that's when I got hooked and I was like, I want to put myself in a place where the thing I'm supposed to do when I get up in the morning is read and write poetry. And that's when I decided to go to graduate school.
2: So you, so you started graduate school in what, 93, 93. So mm-hmm. when you, when, when you and I met at guide dog school in 94, I think it was the summer of 94. Uh, uh, yep. That's what I remember. Cause that's when my career was taking off. Um, you were, I, I didn't know this about you at the time, but
3: you were, you were seriously into poetry. I was. Yeah. I was just really getting, really getting going at that point.
2: So you, uh, you went to UPenn. Is that, did I hear that right? To, to yes. Creative writing programs. So how was that? How was that uh, how how, how oh. going from the corporate world back to the academic academic world, and how how do the accommodations change? you know, between
3: wow, you know, the, oh, between the college and yeah. graduate? Yeah yeah, 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 let's see. Well, there was' a, you know when I was in college, there was no such thing as a coordinator of service for, for students with disabilities. But when I went to Penn, there was a, a woman there named Alice Nagle who was really dedicated and good at it so i i had plenty of readers and i also i was able to get some since i was doing literature i could get standard works of literature from the library right. uh, for the blind so uh, a combination of those really got me through it was challenging it was very i mean uh, there were weeks when you know i was taking uh, i actually ended up dropping a victorian lit course because i was also taking uh uh lit course fiction course a romantic poetry course and then anyway you know you could you could end up easy, easily reading 15 to 1800 pages in a week yeah so that was challenging but i read before i went there and before i chose to go there i read poetry by people who were teaching at schools up and down the east coast and i took uh, about a two week period to go visit schools and sit in on classes and I studied with a guy named Gregory Janikian, who most people have not heard of because he doesn't blow his own horn uh, as much as he probably should. But he's a fabulous poet. And I also, he's just a fabulous person. And I went there really to study with him. It, so was, it was wonderful. This is a pen, right? This, this was, is a pen. Yeah. This a pen. Yeah. They didn't actually have a, they had an undergraduate creative writing program, but not graduate because, hey, it's an Ivy League school yeah. and we don't Fart around with that? We're we we yeah. You know, we don't. Do we're too academic. Things. No, no, yeah. we don't do such things. Yeah, no, I I get it. So <laughs> yep.
2: so so did you, did you get your master's?
3: In- I did. I got a master's in English. Okay. And I kind of then I got I fascinated with how do you turn high school students on, and particularly students from places where there's a lot of poverty, and maybe sure. yeah, not not a lot of you know. So I. Kind of lucked out there because the English degree that I the M F the master's degree was pretty free floating. You could pick almost any ten courses you wanted, or what you know. And one of my picked was a course in teaching high school English through the graduate program of education, and I went over there and then there was a project that had to do with shadowing a teacher, and I didn't know a lot of the a lot of people in the class were already doing student teaching, but I wasn't. And so, and the class was taught by a graduate assistant who knew this fabulous English teacher in the Philadelphia school system at Central High School, which is a magnet school in Philly. And I shadowed her and I got so excited by how she treated students and how they loved her and they, I mean, I could tell these people are really learning this stuff. And so I decided that I wanted, I might as well try student teaching. Cause even if I didn't follow through on it, I'd have that experience. And it just seemed like if you want to know, you got to go do it and find out. Yeah. And that's how I got started with that. And then eventually got my own classroom.
2: So talk about getting that your own classroom. You got a teaching gig, right? Uh, got a teaching gig. Yeah. Doing, doing what precisely and where?
3: Uh, I was at Philadelphia high school for girls. It's another magnet school just across the street from central central used to be the boys school and became co-ed but the uh, girls high was really still all girls and it was a rough go at first when I knew that I was going to follow through from the student teaching I went to an event um where David Hornbeck who was the at the time the um superintendent of Philadelphia Public Schools was speaking and I I made a point to get to meet him and set up, he set up a meeting for me later. And I, uh, we talked about it. And he said, look, I, I I would really like to make this work. And I'm going to assign somebody to you to help you get the things that you need. And so I had some help there, but when I got to girls high, uh, you have to take a test and you know, the higher, the better your score, the, better pick you get of the school. So I lucked out. I got a really good score and I got a good school. When I got there, I realized that the principal did not think I could do the job. And she was in some ways protesting that she had been assigned this blind person and how in the world was she going to deal with that? And so I couldn't actually, I didn't teach for the first 10 or so days, 10 10 to 15 days. I was just, it was kind of humiliating, but I I went through it. I just kind of sat in on other English classes and observed and talked to David Hornbeck's office and said, you know, they said, just be patient. And they eventually, I I think really strong armed her into you got to, this guy deserves the classroom. He's earned it and you can't stand in his way. And then I had an aide to help me sort of spot like disciplinary issues or uh, and also, supposedly to write on the board, but it turned out my my aide, I think, either barely passed high school English or didn't pass. They hired her from the same pool of people who were uh, lifting students in and out of wheelchairs. So She's oh. not really academically trained. Yeah. And eventually, we uh, created a job description that only certain people could meet. And I actually got... <laughs> a good friend who used to be a girlfriend in college to come and be my assistant. And I had some really great years working with her because she was much more than, you know, just watching disciplinary issues. She was actually able to help me with uh, grading and the more academic side of it. Anybody
2: have any questions for Dan? I have lots more, but I'm curious since we've sort of come to a stopping point, any questions for
1: Dan? Well, yes, I am very interested about your teaching, but so what are some books that you've gotten? Have you published some, some poetry books or
3: some other yeah. things? I started just by trying to get things published in magazines, which is really the way to go. And actually then when, when I had sort of a enough, a substantial amount of work, individual poems in magazines, I found a, a publisher who was willing to uh, publish my first book, which is called School for the Blind. And I'll just put in a plug that it was, thank heaven for people like Diane Croft from National Braille Press. She worked out something so that, um, I mean, NLS brailled it, and it's actually bundled with my brother's book. And um, it's called School for the Blind and his book is The Way Love Comes to Me. And so it's in the NLS collection. Unfortunately, NBP or National Braille Press has remaindered the hard copy Braille, but they still have it through August, I think. And you can buy it for five bucks as a BRF file. Anyway, end of commercial. Um, well, no, I, that's great.
1: <laughs> Dan, this is Andy. Do you I know don't... if it's been recorded as an audiobook.
3: Yes, I actually, um, I don't know. Jay Doudna, who used to be yeah. in Pennsylvania, he's now in Oklahoma. He and I were old Overbrook buddies. He, in fact, was my den chief in Cub Scouts. But anyway, I went down there. I guess it would have been the summer of 2019, I think. Um, anyway, I went to his place and recorded it. And so Oklahoma uh, Library for the Blind basically put it on Bard under their auspices. Uh, so you but if hang- we look for it so- just
1: with Dan Simpson in 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 the NLS
3: catalog yep. could we find it that way yes okay. is, uh, didn't uh, i read somewhere that you were po- poet laureate for oh for yeah it's great i i i uh i'm a poet laureate for my town of lansdowne pennsylvania which is a, a small town and i used i loved i really loved the honor but i would i used to joke that it's somewhere between quaint and ostentatious but uh <laughs> uh it, it allowed me to well, that's a up,
1: neat thing i read, and i said hey it was look, wonderful yeah you know,
3: we, had, okay. we had a mayor who was very very arts conscious um and she actually put together a book of uh poems with illustrations by local artists and
1: um oh, that and sounds she lovely. Created,
3: created the position of uh, poet laureate so i got to do that well all <laughs> And there's uh there's another book let's see there's a book that um my so my my wife, Ona Gritz, is a fabulous writer, and actually we met at a Stephen Dunn poetry workshop back in 2005 and totally like disoriented our lives in order to eventually marry each other. But she and I were asked to do a, a poetry reading at the Cornelia Street Cafe in New York, and we only had 20 minutes. We thought we had 40. We had 20, and so we decided, let's do something a little different, and we we created a reading where we hadn't written the poems. I mean, we'd already written the poems, but we, we thought we write about a lot of the same topics. We're interested in issues around faith and doubt and who has what and who doesn't. And she has uh, a mild form of, of cerebral palsy. So we both have an interest in poems around disability. So we thought, I bet we, let's see if we can make a conversation in poems. And so the back and forth between poems we'd already written, and it came out, I think, pretty well. And and, uh, so people said, that ought to be a book. And so we expanded it, and we created a book called Border Songs, A Conversation in Poems. And since then, we've edited an anthology, and I've just finished putting together a new book of poems, which is going to be called Inside the Invisible, and starting to send it out to publishers. So... Oh, wish me luck. (laughs) Yeah, that's... that's Yes, sounds
1: wonderful. Dan, this is Annie. I have a couple of questions for you about, you know, who are some of your favorite poets? What type of poetry are you drawn to when you want to read Mm. and and Mm. be uh, infused with with something uh,
3: Mm. important? That's a great question. And it's a little bit like music. It can change from day to day. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I love, I, one of the reasons we ended up at Stephen Dunn's workshop is that I, we both absolutely love his work. I, I would say his, what I like about his work is he talks about, he writes a line and then he asks himself, do you really believe that? And then he'll write a line that may qualify or contradict it and then say, do you believe that? So the poem kind of works its way down the page in this kind of thinking out process. And he's got a lot of heart too. I do like, and uh, I mentioned Greg Janicki, Gregory Janicki and my teacher at Penn. Unfortunately, all of his books, none of his books, are in braille or recorded form. But Mary Oliver, I love her work. Ah, uh, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think of myself as a as a natural a naturalist or a nature kind of poet, but she sure is, and I I love her work. When I was studying English, particularly at Penn, but it was also true at Muhlenberg. I think John Dunn actually got me really intrigued because of these metaphysical conce- conceits and the, the way, you know, you have to sort of, there's a, there's a higher wire act of like, how do you keep expanding this metaphor um, and making it, making it work? So I still, I'm still a, a John Dunn fan. I'm sure I'm going to miss other people, but th- those are some that come to mind first. Thank so, you for
1: answering. Yeah, uh, and I have one more thing. What actually, this is just a comment. <laughs> I will, at some point, probably would like to contact you to get a little bit of a bibliography of your oh, work uh, and your wife's work and your brother's work. I would love to share that
3: with the. Oh, that'd be good you put
1: that on our list, yeah. Annie. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I would. Sure. I would love to do that. Yeah, All right.
1: Cool. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I just, I mean. if I can say something, Peter. Um, yeah, please. Because I think this is something that is really an FIA kind of concern. Maybe I don't say this with any foreknowledge of of what people are going to do or organizations are going to do, but I see that National Braille Press, I think, is really. It's not lucrative for them to to braille poetry, and mm. and I see that. More and more of us are going to. There are good reasons to go to electronic braille readers, but poetry is not workable. Not so workable. In a, you can't. You can't really feel the shape of a poem. You can't. You can't take in the whole page. Yeah, it's true. And, and so, one of my concerns is that we. I'm. I think I'm going to be on a campaign to try to get the Library of Congress and whoever else I can talk to about it. That if if other hard copy braille goes by the wayside, that things like poetry, just like say foreign languages or math, you you know, you, there's certain things that just belong in our native literacy form. And I I'm so I'm uh, that's my uh, platform right now to. to really we
1: shouldn't have to have either or. We should have no. be able to choose inappropriate appropriate. It should be a particular choice. settings, as practical as mm-hmm. braille displays are and how much you can cram into a place, still, we need our braille.
3: Yeah, I really feel that yes. way, especially for me, for poetry.
2: Right. Well, and of course- Hi, Dan, this is Mike Mandel. Gritty. Hi, Mike. Our Friends in Art has an advocacy committee, and perhaps this is something where we could learn from you and also lend a hand. So, uh, you know, contact me or contact one of the group, uh, perhaps we can talk
0: further.
3: Yeah. I love that idea, Mike. And, um, I'm hoping to be, I've been, you know, since I stopped being working for a corporation and I have had to pay for my own conventions, I didn't travel as much, but, uh, but now that, zoom works really well so i'm hoping to be more involved this summer yeah
2: and, yeah uh, yeah so I, I just want to make a comment to everything that's been said i agree with everything you've said but there's a deeper issue involved which is that fewer and fewer people are learning to read braille in the first place yeah so um uh, i i just hope that i mean that to me is is the is like the the issue number one that we really yeah. want to in, in, increase braille literacy well, so we- Especially in for it, poetry, I mean, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that, but you're right. You know, it's much harder to read poetry on a uh, on a Braille display than than in hard copy. It, it's, it's, and, right. And, and, in,
1: and go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, Zanny, I have something to add. I am a late life vision loss person, so I didn't really learn Braille well. I did learn grade one Braille, and I can read. I can read some, and I read slowly, and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, you know. So, but for me, having my poetry. In hard copy braille, even though I'm not a braille reader per se, just it added some extra context to myself in terms of being an author. You know, it's yeah, it was important to me. You know, I, and I know it's important to other authors with disabilities that we have accessibility, you know, built into all our stuff. So, I mean, I have my braille copy of my of my book of my poetry, and I love it. And sometimes yeah. I, I just kind of take it out and just, <laughs> just, oh, yeah, don't, yeah. you know, it, it's just, and, it's just, and, and, it's and, and a and way theater. to, you know, yeah. yeah,
3: yeah.
2: So. Yep. Absolutely. So, so I, I want to go back uh, to your teaching days and I'm really curious, presumably these, uh, your students are writing poetry for, with you and for you and all those things, and you were looking at it and reacting to it. I, I mm-hmm. that's, is that a fair assessment? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So how did do it? How did Sort of reading uh, young people's poetry and, and giving feedback influenced the way you wrote poetry?
3: That's a good question. I mean, I taught a poetry class, so it was probably more about reading than writing, although we did write, and like if you read, uh, we used some of the poems we read as prompts for something to write. And my approach, well, there's a great a saying by Marvin Bell, the poet, who said, The world has never been harmed by bad poetry. And so I realized, you know, I know I'd written a, a bunch of poet things I wouldn't, wouldn't show anybody when I started. And I thought it's really important just to find what's good in what I'm reading and say, this is working. More of that. Do more of that. And I think how it may have affected my own poetry. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly, Peter. Okay. I, I think in some ways, though, I think I think a bunch, and, and my wife has really been a, a good centering force for me in this regard. I think of poetry as a spiritual practice in a way, yes. and, and it's also yes. like athletics. You get up, you know, if you decide you're going to do it, you can get up and you go to the desk. And I try to treat the morning as as much a workday as my afternoon at Bard as a workday. Um, so so, so, so talk.
2: So talk about that. I'm. I. Mm-hmm. I, I know you. You left your. Your teaching gig? How long? How mm-hmm. long ago did you leave your teaching gig?
3: Oh, I left it in uh, two thousand two thousand two, I think. Or oh, wow.
2: Okay, so it's been it's been longer than I thought. Yeah. So, so now you have this sort of life, you know, where you write in the morning and do your your bard work in the afternoon. If I understand mm-hmm. sort of your basic right. daily thing. So, how did you sort of ease into that? You know, that, that's well. A, that's, you that's, know, this. I, I that's guess a, that's a that's a serious regiment, right? I mean, how did how did you? It, ease, yeah.
3: It? Well. When I, when I left teaching, it was because I really wanted to have more time to write. So then I had said, okay, well then, you know, if, I, I, was, I was a bit on a high wire because I didn't have, when I took my leave of absence, I did get a very part-time job teaching access technology and disability awareness to people at the Free Library of Philadelphia, the staff and patrons. And so all of that sort of developed... And then eventually, I, I got an offer to apply for Bard to work there. And as I as I was, especially once I got the Bard job, I was able to drop the free library job, and and I had enough money that, you know, a combination of saying, oh, "All right, I don't need I don't need a lot. I just need enough money to live on and mm-hmm. save for retirement," which I, I don't know when that'll come. But I think I, I was like, "Okay, I guess I'm getting serious about this," and I also just found myself excited by having more time to read and write and you know and the deeper I got into it so I guess what I would say is it it became a spiritual thing in a practice and and I don't want to make it too frou-frou but it's kind of like what I realized is at least for me the more regular I was about showing up the more engaged I got with my own work and with other people's work. I asked Mary Oliver once about her writing and she said (laughs) Writing is like making friends with a it's probably true of other arts too. Writing is like making friends with a shy person. And if you've ever done that, <laughs> you know that you have yeah. to you have to keep showing up. Yeah. If you if you throw them over for a sale at Kmart, you know, they're not they're gonna go into hiding. Well, they're not gonna show up for you. But if you are able to show up, or you even if it's fifteen minutes twice a week, like pick something that's manageable and show up. And 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 suddenly that shy person in you is saying, you know, the wolf that you had no idea where it came from or what you're going to do with it. I've been thinking about it, and so they they come. It's like that person comes to the table, at the desk with you, and I, that really stuck with me. I, I yes, think, I think that's, I, yeah, that's that resonates
1: one. with me.
2: Yeah, yeah, it resonates with me too. Uh, that's, that's mm-hmm. a, it's
3: a It's
1: a muscle, the writing muscle. Like, mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. I call it. You know, and yeah. you don't address the muscle, it becomes weak. And it won't perform when you when you really need it to the most.
3: Yeah, so, you're right. It, it's, it's certainly giving...
1: applicable to you know music and you know yeah. Um, so, well, honoring your creativity. But, yeah, you know.
2: Yeah, uh, I think yeah. that's re- I think that's really real. So, talk a little bit about what what your life is like now. Like, what 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 are you uh, about these days? What are you thinking about? What are your plans? So, you? yeah, thank
3: you. Well, I'm in a choir, so we, you know, that's been challenging for everybody during COVID, but we're getting back together. I'm taking voice lessons. Just I needed actually to do some vocal therapy and now that's turned into voice lessons. So that's kind of my, that's my play around art, which I really (laughs) like. I've written a couple of, um, there's a group called Votius eight from England, which I highly recommend listening to. They're fabulous. Um, but I got commissioned to write a couple works involving them, and and I, then there's the book that I uh, am I've just finished. I have a memoir that I have stopped and started on for almost 20 years, and I I'm taking memoir classes to really try. It's a it's a jump if you're a poet to try to figure out. The structure of a long, yeah. you know, big book. Oh yes, that's yeah. that's been my challenge. So uh, I'm in the, you know, I think I'm finally in the home stretch, but I've got <laughs> a bunch of work to do yet. On, on
1: so, so in, I, that's uh, wonderful uh, to hear. Being in the home stretch <laughs> is like you're over the doldrums, or the middle of the book is the worst. You get stuck. you looking his, for that.
3: Oh,
1: <laughs> when am I going to get out of those doldrums yeah, and get well, to the I, end?
3: <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'm in there at that point. Uh, so,
1: so, Dan,
2: I, sort of looking at your your bio, you mentioned the the the, Vo- the Vo- Eight. If I got that name correctly, yeah,
3: that's right. um,
2: And I, I, you know, knowing you, knowing your earlier background, I thought, okay, this is a, a Dan has written music for this group. But it's not. You wrote the text for the music. Is that do I have that right?
3: That's right. There's a a, a group in Philadelphia that um, wanted to create a what a song everyone could sing, and I went to five different places: uh, the Overbrook School for the Blind, a rehab a drug and uh, alcohol rehab center, and it's a, a public large public school in Philadelphia. Anyway, there were four local groups plus Volchus Eight, and I. I basically took texts from all these different organizations and then tried to meld them into uh, the lyrics for this song. And then later, uh-huh. Votius8 asked me if I would write a short text that one of their members, Paul Smith, who's a composer, could could set. So that's... So
2: how how was that for you? Uh, I know we're running out of time, Annie, but how was how that yeah. for you? Cause, because you you're sort of migrated from musician to poet that, how was that it was a
3: challenge i mean the, the uh the song everyone can sing i had twice too much stuff i had, i didn't really uh. know how long it would take to set you know eight lines or yeah. 20 lines of text exactly yeah and i had i had way more and the god bless the composer he was trying to fit it all in but then paul smith uh, from vou said said no you got you know you and and so like right at the deadline i Chopped half of the text, just said, "Okay, that goes, that goes, that goes," and it it, it for. So I learned, uh, kind of, uh, you know, the hard knocks how to how to do that. So when I was asked to do this other uh, piece, I knew to just pick. He said, "It's going to be three minutes. You can do four lines. I can work with that for three minutes." It's and, true.
2: It, it is absolutely true. I, I understand. Yeah, that.
3: and I, I just happened to. I was thinking, oh, I don't know, what am I going to say in four? How do how do you do it in four lines? You know, and. Fortunately, I woke up one morning and I was like, got it. And somehow magic happened overnight. So,
2: so Dan, before we go, and thank you for this, for this hour. It's gone really fast. Oh,
3: it's gone very fast <laughs> for
2: me too. Is there a website that people can sort of learn more about you at?
3: Yeah. You know, I'm looking for somebody to help me develop an accessible website. So the best I can offer right now is I have a blog. It's oh. uh, in if you, if you Google Inside the Invisible You'll find. You should find my blog. Inside the indiv- Inside invisible. Inside the invisible. Visible. Yeah. Inside the
2: invisible. It's a Tangtungler. Yeah, yeah, but but it's a great title. <laughs> it's a great thank title. You. Uh yeah. I, I, I have all, right. all, kinds of, all kinds of possibilities. Anyway, yeah. thank you, Dan, so much for this interview. We hope that we can continue to work together with you over time, and it's great to you know reconnect with you after twenty-seven years or however long it's been. So. And we uh, will surely
1: love to have you come advocate with us.
3: All right. Okay, and and, uh, and, col- and collaborate with us. Time. for yeah, Well, that too, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would. I'd love all of that, and I'd. I'd love being here and having time with all of you. Thank you so much for for having me. Thank you, Dan, so much for for, Thank for joining. You. Thank you, Dan. And Thank we'll you, be Dan. Attention. We'll be all right. Sure. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.
0: Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org. mainstream Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org. And please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month.